0: Welcome to Troll Black like TV's weekly podcast where we feature the world's most extreme athletes. This week, we're proud to introduce Brad Gobright and Jim Reynolds, who just broke the nose speed record, which was previously held by Alex Hunnell and Hans Florin by astonishing four minutes. Their time, two hours, 19 minutes, and 44 seconds. How did they do it? What kind of crazy risk were they willing to take? Who do they think will break the record? (laughs) Well, you're about to find out. It gives me great pleasure to introduce the two climbers that will forever be etched in the history books, Brad Cobra and Jim Reynolds. Now before we begin, I think it's important to have a little history lesson so you can grasp the significance of this record. And for that, we had to go back to Memorial Day, 1935, when the legendary John Long, Jim Birdwell, and Billy Westgate climb the nose in just under 15 hours. Now keep in mind, this was before the nose became a trade route laced with dozens and dozens of fixed pieces. It didn't have spring-loaded in devices, sticky rubber shoes, ultralight climbing ropes, and there were three of them, which as we all know, adds a considerable amount of time just in the logistics of switching leads, exchanging gear, and setting up belay stations. So I think it's appropriate before we get into the main interview with Brad and Jim and the former eight-time record holder, Hans that we we'll hear from the legendary John Long, who unknowingly started what I like to call as the world's most dangerous
1: race. Dude, last time I saw you, you looked like someone that could bend a piece of steel with your bare hands. You know? <laughs> that must have been quite a while ago.
2: <laughs>
1: Are you still training like you did in the old
2: days? No, but I'm... I'm uh, I'm riding the bike a lot, so I'm still you know still active, and I still go climbing in the gym and whatnot. But uh, no, I can't do the weightlifting. lifting at sixty years old, like I used to do. It's too, I'm not interested in it. I don't need to walk around like a rambo with all those muscles on either. It's got to be just too much. I was I was getting tired of feeding that thing. <laughs> It was fun, though.
1: <laughs> you know, you're like your shirt just ripped, just flex your muscles. <laughs> you know, I fun. heard I heard about the speed record, man. The first thought that I had was you. You know, because you know, Memorial Day, 1935. Yeah. You, know, you guys, I mean, you along with uh, Jim Birdwell and Billy West Bay, I mean, holy shit. Uh, you lay down a pretty fast time, even by today's standards. You know. Yeah, it
2: was actually 15 hours, or just under 15 hours. Not, I don't know where the 17 came from. It was, it was from the time we roped up at the base to the top was just under 15 hours, and and the only time that we really, because I climbed the thing uh, two years before with, when I was in high school with Ron Fawcett, and English guy, and we could have done it had I known what I did now, we could have easily done it then in the day. Uh, but we, well, we had a bag with us and we stopped halfway, you know, below the great roof and bivouacked at like one o'clock. Cause it was so goddamn hot. climbing in August, but you know, it was, by the, by the, of the only the, yeah, the only time on the, when we did, because we weren't like going for a lapsed time at all. It wasn't even thought of ours. It was just trying to do it in daylight. Right. And, uh, the only time that we really went like balls to the wall fast was from the ground to the top of the boot, which I led. We started at 4.45 and we got to the top of the boot at 7.15, so we were motoring on that section. Boom. Yeah, and that's, that's, good, with, that's, climbing, that's climbing belay to belay with with two guys yumaring. Um Wow. So we, we were going about as fast as you can go on the, and those are the easier pitches, but... I was running, you know, if there was a, something to clip or I could put an easy, you know, easy, just drop a nut in and I'd do that. Otherwise, I'd just run those pitches all the way out. I mean, I was climbing Free Solo and all over Joshua Tree and what have you. So, those were totally doable. You know, that was doable climbing. We got to the top of the boot. I was like, or all of us were like, well, shit, man, this is stay of the course. We got this thing made. And so, we we just went into cruise mode and got to the top with a couple hours of daylight left, got back down the road right when it was getting dark and that was it. But, uh, you know, had I known that a lap time would have later have been, uh, you know, something to go for, I probably would have tried a little bit harder on that as centered. I would have gone back. I did the nose another couple of times after that, never trying to, trying to do any kind of crazy stuff. It was usually with girls or something. and, and and just never, never got into that doing a, a stopwatch kind of thing because it wasn't, it didn't make any sense at that time. It was only later that became a game. And for, and for my money, no. And I, you know,
1: when I thought about your ascent, and I, and I keep going back to that because you know that was almost forty-five years ago. <laughs> you know, like, yeah.
2: That, that was that
1: was I No. <laughs> that was your Crude gear and was, crude uh,
2: shoes.
1: Crude shoes. I know. Tell us about your shoes. What were you wearing then? I know what I was wearing. I'm not curious what you were wearing.
2: Well, I, I just had a Swami belt on and EBS, um, you know, tight-fitting EBS, and you know, a few petons and a big rack of hexes and stoppers. So that that was, you know, in some slings, you know, caveman stuff. Um, so you had to you had to make sure that you had something in that was going to, or you, Actually, you know, I, I, I didn't because I was leading from the ground. And then the first four pitches were a little tricky, but you can get bomber stuff in a climb with a headlamp. And then once you get in the stove legs, this, all that pitch, all that climbing is easy. It's never mm-hmm. harder than minimal 5'10". So, yeah, I mean, I you know, then, uh, I mean, we we're I was down climbing that great at Josh. So, you know, that, that that was not, it was just a matter of, Staying solid on it and going fast, so it it, it above that above the boot because the you know once you get through the gray bands you know you get in the upright dihedral that thing kicks up pretty steep so you know you couldn't uh you things can go wrong up there but it's a straight shot and it's not uh, there's no pendulums there's no you know once you once you get to pancake plate man you're just gunning it the other thing that impressed me was the fact that it was three of you because all these speed records are just two people.
1: Well yeah that was
2: Bridwell's thinking Bridwell's thinking was that we could it didn't work, but the thought was that i could lead i could lead fast, you know super fast and then Billy could jumar free rope and get up to me before quicker than if he was having to clean right mhm um, and it was, but then we ended up waiting for Bridwell, so you know it it uh or he did. Yeah, it, it was just the logistics of it turned out to be uh, not. It was too complicated. Going with two guys was, it ended up being way easier. When I went back and did the triple direct that way, it was you know it was way easier with less stuff, less water, yeah. all of it. So
1: yeah, because when you got three people, you need an extra rope.
2: That third person. Yeah, not only yeah, an extra rope, no. there's extra shit, you know. Yeah, and, and all and all of it, and you know the ropes are going to get stuck or something. You know, there's just it's impossible to go three thousand feet and not have any kind of hang up at all. I mean, rigging or something. And you know, when you got three people, it's a clusterfuck. So it takes longer to break the blaze down. And, and I mean, it sounds like a great idea, and it did work, uh, <laughs> but it wasn't. It wasn't what. You know, there's also the uh, matter of towards the top. You know, a third guy was having a free, you know, Jumar a free rope. That was me, and that sucked because I, I didn't have leg loops. So I was just on my Swami, and you know that I mean I was way out in space. A lot of those things, Jumar, old you know, ratty nine millimeter. I was like, oh, oh man, man. So just yeah. spinning in space. Yeah, this is not. I wouldn't have it's chose this. I mean. Uh, it wasn't freaking me out because I was young and stupid, but uh, it was still like, uh, this isn't, you know, you had to bear down because it was not, well, I just kept thinking about, back on when Harding and those guys were up there with Prusik's. I go, all right, fine, I got it pretty good, actually. <laughs> you know, Prusik's on weird ropes. Yeah. You no know, kidding, funky like the anchors road. and shit. Yeah. And, and a couple of those, one of them I know broke when they were doing oh. it. And, uh, Yeah, so, you know, there's always, there was always that to back.
0: Over the next few decades, the record was broken at least 18 times by some of the most prestigious big wall climbers of our time. Most notably, Hans Florian, who was undefeated in the international speed climbing competitions for five years straight, with three gold medals from the X Games under his belt. To date, Hans has set the speed record for the nose eight times, which is also a record with five different climbers. So when I heard that Han's record had been broken, I had to ask the question I know all of you want answered.
1: So all the news that your record had been broken, I'm going, holy shit. I ne- Seriously, I never thought your record would be touched. I was just Thanks, zero- thinking that. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm not alone there. We're like When you set that record with Alex, we're like, OK, no one will ever touch that one. Um, but i have to ask you now that's been broken what are your
3: thoughts on that well i was super lucky i feel that brad and jim like me and they kind of kept me in the loop on how they were doing so at least i got to be like one of the first people to know um um and i'm totally i know my ego is boosted because it took them multiple tries you know to to do it and they're both like crazy fit climbers, you know. No doubt. I'm not, no doubt. Yeah, I mean Brad's resume of hard sends is, you know, well beyond mine on um, his, you know, 513 solos and I don't know all of his resume of hard climbing, but it's I think it's far beyond mine, so him and Jim's skills um taking so many tries to polish it down and two full seasons of working on it make me feel like cool, you know. It's, we're, and, you know, them saying it's worthy of their effort to do is totally cool.
1: Absolutely, man. And, and you gave them a
3: bit of beta too, didn't you, before they did it? Um, I may have said, you know, I totally reveal anything they want to ask me, but um, I don't know their specific details how they ran it. And I'm trying to look around for articles and stuff. And I just talked to Brad yesterday and said, hey, you know, if only for yourselves, you should write down everything you thought, felt, and how you did it from the time you woke up that morning until, you know, you were done celebrating, because it's just a great um, thing to have to look back on and read through the details, you know.
1: So, no doubt. And I'd love, I'd love to
3: read it if it's not too personal is what I told him, because <laughs> you know, when I... Gave the detail of what me and how me and Alex or me and Yuji, a lot of people complimented or just sent and said thanks. And that's really cool to see how that's done and stuff.
1: Do you have any desires yeah. to recapture the title now that, uh, it's in the
3: hands of someone else? <laughs> this is, a. Uh, I I think within days after me getting the record with Alex in 2012, I said no, I won't go again. <laughs> um, and, you know, athletes, in other sports, say they're retiring and come back, but I'm pretty good not bothering to go. And it's not bothering, but um, Alex actually um, texted me a day or two after the record was broken and said, Hey, if you're super stoked, I'll go with you, but otherwise, I'm going to head out on the spring with Tommy to get it. And I just wrote him back and said, Hey, good luck. Let me know when you guys do it. I'll meet you at the top. <laughs> Perhaps him, you know, asking for my blessing. He certainly has it, you yeah.
1: yeah, well, we're all rooting for whoever. I mean, we just love seeing the, the spirit of climbing taking us all to new levels. And the, the attitude that you have towards this is beautiful, man. Seriously. It's graceful.
3: Well, I mean, I remember when you asked, do I have any intention of recapturing the record? I don't think that I, I don't know. Anything's possible, but... Um, I remember what was way more exciting and more life-rewarding was typically the record gets broken in the fall. And I can remember, you know, back when Timmy O'Neill and Dean did it. Like, I was so psyched to train through the winter and give it a try the next summer. And when the Uber Brothers broke it, I was so psyched every workout from the time the Uber Brothers broke it in October until the next spring when I got to try it with, UG um so I'm kind of considering well I have a training regime where I can score myself in the gym down in the city to see how I'm doing and I'm considering just training through the winter and just to see if I can reach where I was before because it's heck of fun to try to get the record when you get the record it's only two hours and whatever 25 minutes and then it's over and yeah there's lots of campaign and celebration and kudos from your friends but it's the months for me of training you know maybe Alex didn't have to train for it but I did (laughs) so I'm thinking like there's no there's no downside for me to try to train for it and believe me Jan like every day since the record's been broken one or two people have called me texted me instant messaging and go so you're going to go for the record again aren't you (laughs) and I'm just like oh man
1: Again. Well, you've held it, what, eight times now?
3: Yeah, eight times. And what's <laughs> fun is that, you know, I've done it with, uh, one two, I don't know, five different people.
1: That's awesome.
3: You know that uh, Alex and Tommy took a run at it, uh, I guess, two days ago, yeah? No, I didn't know
1: that. No. Yeah, they
3: did it in about four hours I hear. Having, you know, never climbed it fast together before, that's It's still pretty good. uh, Really good. Um, And they'll just tune a couple techniques and take a couple runs, and I I would guess they'll get under three hours pretty quickly and then have a good feeling whether or not they want to push for the record or not. In 2008, the Huber brothers broke the three-hour barrier
0: and established a new record with a time of two hours, 48 minutes, and 35 seconds. During that three-year effort, the world was reminded of the dangers when Thomas was injured during a horrific fall in their 2006 effort. Their record stood until Hans Florin and Yuji Hirayama reclaimed the record with a time of 2 hours, 37 minutes, and 5 seconds. For a while, it appeared this record would remain unbeaten. Until 2010, the late Dean Potter and the late John Leary rammed the nose in two hours 36 minutes and 45 seconds breaking Hans' record by a mere 20 seconds Vowing to reclaim the record Hans, who we just heard from teamed up with the legendary free solo and artist, Alex Hunnell. Not surprisingly, these two incredibly gifted athletes shattered the record with a mind-blowing time of 2 hours 23 minutes and 46 seconds shaving nearly 13 minutes off the time held previously by Dean Potter and Sean Leary and for the next five years, their record remained unchallenged. Nobody, including myself, thought anyone could beat their time. How could they? We're talking about the two greatest big wall climbers of our generation. But Brad Gobright and Jim Reynolds did just that. Proven, Anything is possible if you put your mind to it, and if you believe it's possible. It gives me great pleasure to introduce the two climbers that'll forever be etched in the history books. Brad Gobright and Jim Reynolds.
1: First of all, major kudos on your record-breaking ascent. Uh, yeah.
3: You
1: know, many of us, including myself, never thought this record would ever be broken considering, you know, Alex Hummel and Hans Florian held the record. Yeah,
4: yeah you know? I know. It it it, 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 uh, it had helped for about five years, I guess, you know, which is kind of a long time for the news. Yeah. I'm, I'm psyched to have gotten the ball rolling again.
1: You sure did, man. You stirred up a hornet's nest, man. Everyone's talking about it.
4: Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. I don't know, Jim, and I might be done though. That was that was like our little uh, our little shot at it, and um, I think it'll probably get retaken pretty soon. And uh, that'll be that.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. Who do you think will do it? Um.
4: You know. I. I. Uh, I. I do know who who will do it, but I'm I'm not gonna. I won't put names out there yet. Um. We'll let, we'll let those guys do it. I don't know. Maybe it's silly, but I don't know. I'm, I'm gonna make it. A,
1: it'll be a surprise for everyone. <laughs> uh, you so I know that uh, Tunnel and uh, Tommy Coddle are working on. Are they possible candidates? Uh, maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs>
4: well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, no, they they'll be the ones going for it. So yeah, it'll be will yeah. be rad when it, uh, when they do it. You know, it'll be it'll be uh, it'll blow everyone away. I'm sure. So.
1: Yeah, I'm sure it will be. And so we use simul climbing right from the start or how did that work out?
4: Um, so we uh we do two different things. We short fix and we simul climb. We simul climb like maybe eighty percent of it and we short fix the other twenty percent. Um so the first four pitches we short fix, I'm leading Jim Jim Jugs. And then uh and then once we get on top of sickle edge on top of pitch four, we go into simul climbing mode and um and then yeah, we kind of from there we kind of like switch back and forth between between sharp fixing and simul climbing, um, but the majority is 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 done simul climbing just because it's quicker.
1: Very dangerous though.
4: Um yeah yeah it's um definitely not super safe. Uh, although you know what's interesting is um as the leader like I've I've had Jim weight the rope as the follower when I'm the leader and I've felt like his body weight sink onto the rope. And, uh, when we've got 60 meters between us, like all that rope stretch kind of really takes away a lot of the, uh, the impact of that fall. So I'm, I'm pretty certain that if he did suddenly like come off the wall and like, like, uh, load the rope, I probably, I, I would be fine. Like there's this one spot on, on, uh, top of pitch nine where it's, um, it's called Dolt tower. You cl- I climb around Dolt tower and I start climbing up further up the nose and when Jim gets to the top of Dolt Tower, he kind of, like, more or less jumps off the summit of adult Tower and swings over to the right into this other crack system. And I'm just, like, up there climbing. Like, he'll he'll yell up, like, hey, I'm coming off the tower. And then uh, I just sort of, like, brace myself, and he just kind of takes the swing. And, you know, I hardly feel it. So it's kind of interesting. Hmm.
1: Yeah. Is there at any point both of you are do uh,
4: No gear between you? Uh... Yeah, there there's one spot on Sickle Ledge, um, where it's like I'm I'm on like fourth class stuff and he's just kinda walking the ledge. Um and but yeah, that's other than that, that's it. We always we always have something between us.
1: Um, yeah, like how many pieces yeah. do you normally have?
4: Um, it depends on what part of the route we're on. Um the stove legs there there's a couple spots, like I guess it's pitch five through nine. There's a couple spots where we only have one. Between us, Um, but mostly we've got like a few, so like three, four, sometimes five. But uh, yeah, the the stove legs, the stove legs are are one of the more dangerous parts of the route for both of us because we're simul climbing, we're going really fast, and uh, we're not placing much gear there. And it kind of it just goes straight up,
1: you know, one pitch after the other. It's just straight up. Yeah, you've been quite saying that 85% of the route. If either of you fell, most particular at blue Flake, where Quinn Bressel you could have been yeah. seriously injured or killed.
4: Yeah, that that um for me that's probably the most dangerous part on my lead. Um, that's the last pitch that I that I'm leading on the route, and uh, yeah, that I would say is probably the most dangerous one because the run out there is so huge. Um, um the climbing is generally easy, but um, you know I, don't, I I'm not sure exactly what happened to Quinn. I think she was maybe uh, leapfrogging cams, and one of the cams blew out. Um, so it's, you know, something you have to be really careful about, you know, I, I knew it was dangerous before Quinn had her accident, but, um, you know, it was a good, it was a good reminder, um, and, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm really glad she's, she's still alive, so.
0: Since we're on the subject of Quinn Brad, who nearly lost her life to taking a hundred foot fall while reportedly going for the woman's speed record, which we covered in the next issue of the world's most dangerous race, I'm going to switch over to Brad's climbing partner. Jim Reynolds, who was a member of the Yosemite Search and Rescue team, Jim was part of the rescue operation.
1: Were you involved in that rescue? I yeah, I
5: was actually um, myself and and the rest of my team. We all went out there, and uh, yeah, I, I you know we had climbed the nose literally the day before, um, and then the call goes out for this rescue on on El Cap, and. Um, you know we don't have actually a lot of Cap rescues these days so there's a little bit of an excitement for the search and rescue team like oh we get to go do this cool technical like awesome SAR on LCAP and there was a little like excitement that quickly faded when the severity of the situation sank in to us all and oh, um,
1: tell, tell us about that what what happened I mean, step by step if you could because for a lot of us we're hearing this for the
0: first time
5: Yeah, so, um, for me, I'm I'm not exactly sure how it was that I got, um, how I got pulled into it, but somehow, like, I got the page late, like, the emergency page was late, and so, by the time, oh, that's what it was, everyone else was in training, so they kind of, there wasn't even a page, there was just, like, this immediate response from everyone, they were out doing technical ropes training. Uh, and I was not present for that. So next thing I know, there's, like, texts on my phone that say, like, El Cap Rescue, like, you know, we're all going to the meadow, and, and, you know, in fear of being left behind, rather than, you know, I literally hopped on my mountain bike and put on my star shirt and pedaled as fast as I can a couple miles down to the El Cap meadow to try to wow. hop in and be as useful as possible. And when I showed up, you know like I said I was still under the impression that it was just you know some random party like there's so many people who climb the nose and so the fact that there was an accident on the nose specifically on the bootleg I thought you know some new wall party like probably not that experienced maybe take this backwards pendulum swing across the king swing and, and got injured um but obviously, I got on scene and started asking my my comrades what, what's the deal. And uh, Alexa Flower, who's one of my teammates, turns to me and goes, "She said, did you hear uh, what's going on?" I said, "No." And she said, "Well, it's it's a fatality." Was the first thing I was told, and you know, obviously that dampens the all excitement. It's like, ooh, we're you know, we're, we're about to go there. And then, you know, everyone's kind of, like, running around trying to be not frantic, but trying to, like, get ready to go. And then I, I talked to um, Dave Weintraub, who's another kind of the most senior on our team. And I, I asked him, I was like, so what's the story? What happened? You know, Alexa just told me it was a fatality. And he goes, yeah, so pretty much the story is that Quinn Brett is dead. And. Wow. And that, like that, was my that was my briefing essentially. That was what I was told. Um, and so for me, it, you that know, that was devastating for you, you guys were friends, weren't you? Yeah, we're we're kind of all of us were were maybe like a, a level removed. Like we were all really good close friends with Josie McKee, who who was the Quinn's partner on that run. Um, and I I met Brett up plenty of times and we'd interacted uh i would I would have called us really positive acquaintances more than friends you know um but still just like close close enough to to definitely have an impact and especially in light of of uh you know him kennedy had just passed away earlier that week and it just kind of gave that feeling of like oh, the, you know the whole world can, it's just one of those weeks like one of those terrible terrible weeks um but, you know, obviously we learned that, uh, no, in fact, she, she wasn't dead, um, but there was a chance that, like, she, she might be soon. And, uh, the, the plan, well, so what had happened is, you know, she had climbed, um, climbed up. They were also simul climbing as I, as I knew. They, um, and while, Josie was getting up to the Texas flake, like she was in the chimney behind the Texas flake. Quinn was way up on the boot flake, and, you know, she'd had experience running that pitch out before. She'd do this thing where she'd free climb if she felt really good, and if she felt less good, she would place a cam and and clip indirect or or just pull on it, you know, kind of do some French freeing. Um, But according to her, she doesn't really remember what happened in the exact moment, except for remembering that, like, you know, they were they were out there, like, noon or one o'clock sort of thing, so it, it was pretty hot up there by then, and uh, probably just slipped, and had the last bolt on the bolt ladder of, of the pitch leading up to the boot flake cliff and took uh, what's reported to be a hundred foot fall and struck the boot flake, and, uh, you know, continued to kind of tumble down into or sorry, just struck the Texas flake and tumbled down in. Um, and so the, the plan from a, the emergency response team was that the initial attempt was going to be to do a short haul, which would be like to use the helicopter with a fixed 100-foot line coming off the bottom and get us super close to the wall. Like, it's terrifying to watch as they insert someone who's hanging from the bottom of that 100-foot line onto El Cap Tower. Uh, they actually inserted two people, um, who are two of the climbing rangers. Amazing. We were down in the El meta at the time, watching it all go down, listening to the radio communication. And I remember hearing the helicopter pilot, who's taking, um, you know, the the person who's doing the short, uh, who's on the end of the short haul line, is calling out distances of the rotor of the helicopter from the wall, and he's saying, you know, four zero. Zero. And the helicopter pilot, I remember him saying, yeah, I mean, we're pretty much fully trusting you guys because we look like we're a lot closer to the wall than you guys are saying. And so if, if you think we still got room, we'll keep doing it. But we're fully relying on you because to me, it looks like we're about to hit the wall. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, Aaron Smith and Brandon Latham were the two the two guys who got short hauled in. And um, our our pilots are also incredible, incredible pilots. Um, Unfortunately, I'm not not too. Haven't met them personally. I'm not sure who they are. Um, But in in the meantime, while this is going on, myself and the rest of the search and rescue team are getting ready to uh, get flown up to the top of the mountain. To essentially, if the short haul doesn't work, we're going to do like a, you know, three thousand. foot lower yeah we're
4: gonna
5: we're gonna send the ropes down and um you know do what we're trained to do and myself personally i was i was really affected by it for sure it was the first rescue that i've been on where i wondered if it was if it was time for me to step away and tell my supervisor like this is this is too much for me and i i can't i can't handle being on this rescue because it's too you know too too close to home um and i didn't i didn't end up end up saying that but i definitely was you know real concerned about it and um i i actually ended up volunteering not to go in the helicopter to the top of el cap and instead stay on the ground with um another one of the climbing rangers who's a good friend of mine to go um receive her at the bottom because the 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 contingency plan was that we would lower her all the way to the ground, so there needed to be people on the ground to receive her. And um, I still, we still at this thought point thought she was was potentially dead, and uh, I thought it was important for me to go with uh, with my friend Bud Miller to the base to make sure that he had a a good friend to be there with him in this really like extreme and dire situation. So he wasn't just like. Alone with a bunch of strangers, like ha- handling this traumatic experience. So
1: that had to have, like play in your head because I'm just thinking of like you know the history of El The nose got the Hoover brothers, Thomas taking a huge fall, Willie Stack taking a huge fall. Did that ever play in the back of your mind? Or something like that could happen to you guys while you were silent climbing.
5: Yeah, um,
1: so. I definitely needed
5: to take a week off from climbing after after that incident because I needed some time to really think about whether it was all worth it. Um, and yeah, so there, there was that fear that it, it was something that could happen. And we always said to each other, we're only going to climb as fast as is safe. And if we felt insecure or you know it's like we weren't climbing to our best we could just slow down and we could climb safer Um, which which actually happened on one of our first laps of this fall when we went up and I was just kind of out of shape and and we simul climbed to the boot flake and by the time we got to the boot flake I was so tired I had pushed into my anaerobic state too much for too long to the point where when I took over the leads I, I yelled to Brad I said hey I'm I'm gonna be really slow for this next part. I, I just, it's not safe for me to push it at this point. Um, so yeah, we definitely were concerned. I mean, it's, it's a scary thing, you know. I also wondered, is are we gonna have the discipline and re- restraint to know when it's appropriate to call it? Like, are we gonna, are we gonna say? Are we just going to push it until we either hurt ourselves or break the record?
0: That was a really good question. Were they willing to take that kind of risk? We all know Alex Hunnell isn't. But how far were they willing to push it? So I switched gears and I asked Brad.
1: Now, switching gears to free soloing, you've built yeah. quite a reputation of being a free soloist. and Many are comparing you to Alex Hunnell. Um, yeah. you, you free soloed The Rock Drum and Yosemite. You've sold hairstyles and attitudes, twelve C in El Canyon, um, The Naked Edge. Um have you always been a free soloist?
4: Um, you know, like since I started climbing outside I would say I have been. Um you know, I, I don't compare to to Alex whatsoever. Like he's you know, he's in his own own uh, realm of just like insane solos. But uh yeah, I've I've um I've been soloing a while, like Usually it's just when uh, I want to climb by myself or I can't find anyone to climb with, and uh, I'll just go run up to, you know, the cliff, like maybe in Joshua Tree, Yosemite, um, Smith Rock, like places like that where I'll just run out by myself and climb easy stuff. And it's a great way to get get in a lot of mileage. Um, You're not waiting for anyone. You can kind of just go up one climb, down another, up another, down another, and, you know, you're not having to wait, so it's you can, you know, you get a lot of climbing in, and the, you know, it's fun sometimes just being by yourself and kind of just uh, let be left to your own thoughts. And um, you know, but there there have been other uh, like a couple of solos, um, particularly in in El Dorado Canyon, where I uh, I did just because I wanted that mental challenge, uh, and I knew it would be like kind of an extra coming in following and it would be something I'd have to prepare for physically and mentally, and um, I kind of just wanted that challenge. Uh, but for the most part, um, I'm usually out there by myself just because you know I wanna I wanna experience the the pleasure of just moving fast and being by myself. So
1: no, I totally get it, man. Yeah, you know, one of the things that always impressed me about what I've heard from you is your willingness to walk away from a route if conditions or your internal vibration just doesn't feel right. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Tell us more about yeah.
4: that. Um, well, you know, that actually happened a couple times this, this season. Uh, I went I went down to solo the Rostrum, uh one time, and, uh, you know, I'd been doing it, like, I think I did it, like, five times this fall. Uh, and there was one time where I just got down there, and it was just kind of warm. And I was like, you know, it's just like, I've, I've done this before. You know, I'll probably do it again, and I don't have to do it now. And, you know, it wasn't the conditions weren't that bad, but they were just, like, they were uncomfortable, and it's like, you know, why risk it? So,
3: um,
4: you know, you want to try to go up there with, like, 100% certainty that you're going to do it. You know, obviously, you can't have 100%, but, uh, um, you know, just the warm weather just kind of made me feel uncomfortable. And uh, it happened again on Half Dome. I went up to go solo Half Dome. Not not pre-solo, but, like, solo with some cams and a harness just to, like, plug myself in on some of the harder climbing. And, um, yeah, I just woke up in the morning, like, not really that psyched. Uh, you know, partly it was just that I was, like, kind of feeling lazy. I, I didn't want to, like, go hike all the way up there. But also, I just was, like, I don't know. I was a little nervous. Um, I can't really explain why. I just was, like, yeah, I don't feel good today. So I decided not to do it. You know, that's something else. I had done that, like, three times already. So it's, like, it was nothing, like, super special. And, um, yeah, what, I mean, I uh, got it, it twice. It happened twice on Hairstyles and Attitudes where I, I went up there and I was, like, no, I'm not feeling it today. And I backed off. And, you know, finally that third time, I was like, All right, I don't feel 100% psyched. I'm for it. You know, we we've actually Jim and I have have actually failed, You know, because we just didn't feel good. Uh, it's happened before. He's like, you know, remember I just like I'm not that psyched today. And I was like, you know, yeah, it's totally fine. I respect that. And you know, we'll just do it another day.
1: So. Do Do you think it's possible for someone to break the two-hour barrier? on the nose?
4: Uh, I do. Yeah, I do. I think it's, it's definitely possible. Um, I think it's going to come down to stronger free climbing, um, less aid climbing, more free climbing and, uh, just climbing quicker on like maybe harder stuff. Uh, I think that's, that's what it'll come down to. I think Jim and I got like a, just about a perfect strategy. And, um, I think if, if we were going to go quicker, it would, it would just have to be through more free climbing and, uh, more and quicker free climbing stronger free climbers would be able to break the two, two hour barrier.
1: Interesting. What percentage um, are you free climbing now?
4: Um, on the nose. Um, I would say, it's hard to say, you know, like pitch one, like I'm, I'm probably free climbing, like 95% of it. there's a couple spots where I'll like a pull on a bolt or step on a piton. um, you know, and it's just kind of like that pitch after pitch. Like, if there's a if there's a fixed cam in the crack, I'll grab it. Um, but I don't know. I guess I'd say, like, maybe we maybe free climb, like, 80% of it, I'd say. Maybe 20% we're, like, pulling on gear. Like, Jim mm-hmm. Jim A climbs most of the, the great roof in, uh, in the first half of the glowering spot. Um, but, yeah, I, I would, if I had to give a percentage, I'd say 20 and, you know, I think there's, there's like 5.11 climbing that we're doing that I think if it could be climbed faster, it could be free climb faster, um, you know, which, which would definitely take some time off. Uh, and then, yeah, and then like, maybe it's like free climbing, just like the 5.11 plus
1: 5.12 bits.
4: Well, um, but eventually I think it gets to the point, like with 5.13 climbing, I think it would be slower to free climb it. Um, mm-hmm. so you just kind of have to find that balance. I, I think there's that perfect balance and, uh. You know, whoever can
2: find that, we'll we'll get the
0: sub two time. Naturally, I had asked John Long the same question, and here's what he had to say.
2: It's a, it's going to be interesting to see over the next couple of years of how much how much that does go down. But I, mark my word, it's going to be risk and cardio that are going to be the the two defining characteristics. If the gear is already good. You know, you're not going to have. And the shoes are not going to come along that are so good that they're going to make that much of a difference on that. I don't think. Unless there's like, like flubber shoes, or something you know that like stick, like like stick, you know, to, to everything or or. I mean, I can't rope technology, I and mean, what would it be, right? Yeah. it's really going to be just performance stuff. So, other than cardio and 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 taking bigger risks, soloing more of it. Yeah, well, unless someone like Alex
1: Hummel just walks up and
2: free solos it like you do Free Rider. Well, I think I think maybe the fastest way would be to have a minimum, minimum gear rack and the speed record will eventually be a solo ascent with aid assist where you grab or whatever what you need and just back clean it as you go. Oh, fuck, I didn't even want to think about doing that. I know. Oh, my God. I you
1: wouldn't want
2: to watch yeah. it that way. Yeah, yeah, one of those old bolts rips out or whatever, you know, and you're, and you're you know what I'm saying. I mean, basically, yeah. just free climbing up to where you can't, you don't like anyone, and then going on aid here and there, and then, imagine clipping across the great roof on those creaky, that creaky shit with just aid slings clipped into the eye. Oh, Fucking man. hell. <laughs> 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 I don't want or, or... or Doing that fingertip five eleven back at the top of the top of the, uh, of the uh, pancake flake with no rope. Whew. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can I can see I can see doing the you know the bottom of the pancake. It's only five easy five ten, but you know you get to that thin stuff or that pitch off camp six. It's like five twelve probably and uh, steep as fuck and. uh yeah. I mean, you really want to try to pin your lock up that thing with no rope?
0: Bruh! I couldn't agree more with John. The thought of someone speed soul in the nose in under two hours is enough to make me wake up in a cold sweat. And I figured if there was anyone who could provide some insight into what it would take to break the two hour bear, it'd be Hans Flurry.
1: Yeah, you know, it's looking at you, if you're the one that's done. The nose more times than anyone else, and has held the record so many times. What do you think is going to be the key in shaving that record down even more?
3: Well, I don't think that it's going to be being more dangerous because the gear is so light right now. I mean, when me and Alex didn't, they, Alex did it. We did not have ultralight cams, so like you could have you know, the same number of cams me and Alex had, which was plenty and would weigh, probably in total, your rack would weigh a pound if not two pounds less. Um, and, And what held me and Alex back from going faster was not the weight of the gear on our shoulders. In my opinion. It was just our aerobic capacity. I mean, I was coming from sea level up to do the thing with him and I was gasping for air in the stove legs, and I, like I would stop, and Alex would be like, What are you stopping for?" I'm like, "Dude, I'm trying to catch my breath." <laughs> so um, I think it's just um, staying up there at altitude, being fit, and um, nailing everything perfect. Because even when Alex and I got the record, I got the rope caught and had to like back down a little bit and jerk the rope up, which could cost you know 30 seconds here and there was probably some other tangle i can't quite remember where he waited 15 seconds because i hadn't quite finished the short fixing jugging the line and then you know untied and then he kept going and when you look at a uh, brad and jim's record they only went seven point something seven point seven seconds faster than alex and me per pitch so
1: that's not a lot. When you,
3: yeah. When you look back, you go, well, seven seconds, even on the first pitch, if I had just started seven seconds earlier when, or Alex had just started seven seconds earlier when he was simul climbing, that would have changed that, you know, and you just like, well, I, yeah, I think I can go seven seconds faster every pitch. But the, the, the interesting thing about the nose is that there's a lot of stuff that can go right and wrong. And I'm sure that Brad and Jim had something go wrong, even when they did in the record time. You know, I don't, well, if not two or three things, but wrong is not really like wrong. It's just that, like, in 3,000 feet of climbing with all those pendulum stuff, stuff happens and you have to deal with it, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, including coming up on a party that's in mid lead, you know, like, oh, shoot, you know, what what do we do here? maybe pausing a minute for somebody to clip in and get fixed so you to go by or whatever it might be. That's part of doing the world's most famous sought-after route, <laughs> big wall route in the world. It's like, there's going to be people on it. So.
0: so true. There is so much that can happen while speaking on the nose. A rope can get stuck. You can get delayed by another party. Or you can take a whipper that puts you inches from the grave. There are very few people that can offer the perspective of Jim Reynolds, who has given this a lot of consideration.
5: I've been asked this question before, and I, the, the res, best response I have for it is, like, yeah, it's it's possible, for sure, in the same way that to free solo 5.15 is possible. But is it, <laughs> it, is it a good idea? Like, should it be done? Like I don't know, you know and and there might be someone who out there who determines that they're they're a good enough climber and they believe in themselves enough to to make it happen um, mm. but yeah, there's definitely like that same thing, like the people who go up to try are gonna have to be really honest with themselves about when they hit a point where it's not worth it to push it any faster, and um, uh, yeah, I'd be stoked for someone if they did. Um, but yeah, and yeah, you, you know, you mentioned something about like the whole take 30 seconds off per pitch kind of a thing. And that, that was something that we had said, uh, coming into the record ourselves because our fastest time before the season was, was two hours and 51 minutes. And, and we had said, well, we just need to take 30 seconds off per pitch, but, or, or a minute off per pitch. But like, when, you know, we're climbing the first four pitches to sickle in 12 minutes, that means suddenly you have to climb the sickle in eight minutes. <laughs> so, uh, it's, it's like there's just pitches that literally are climbed in like probably like a pitch might take like less than a minute or two minutes. So taking like 30 seconds off that pitch is an enormous margin.
0: Well, there you have it. If you want to break the two hour beer, you're going to have to be extraordinarily fit. Especially when it comes to cardio and you're gonna to have to be willing to take unusually high risk so be warned the dangers are real falling while summer climbing or running it out with minimal gear can cause severe injury or death which is why I'm calling this the world's most dangerous race if you enjoyed this episode please share and give us a five-star rating and make sure you sign up whether it's through our website or which will make you eligible for winning a kick-ass prize, or through one of your favorite social media or podcast channels. We really appreciate your support. Our next episode will be on the women's race, which reminds me, if you're in the financial position where you can donate money to Quinn Brett's recovery efforts, which are enormous, please log on to youcaring.com slash Quinn Brett. That's youcaring.com slash Brett. Your donations will be deeply appreciated. Until next week, my friends, this is Dan Goodwin with True Black TV, your entertainment source for extreme sports.